Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. TF3. Fortunately, we've kept all of our summer assets, and Dave O'Brien joins me for this preview podcast. Hmm, yeah. The assets have been kept. The new season is upon us. The sun is shining. So it was a good day. Were you tempted by anyone else, Dave? Did anyone else come along and say, we do a podcast? Well, those big news about the Guardian podcast, they offered me a deal, but I turned it down to, to stay with the guys. Um, you know, similar to the, the Borussia Dortmund team that got torn apart, I wanted to stay with Mario Goethe, stay with Lewandowski and obviously stay with Matt Hummels. Wow, you've actually named three people that do look very similar to the... Who's who, though? So I, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, which one's Mario Goethe? I'm sure you could go out with FYI. Uh, of course. <laughs> you do always have that sort of... Uh, that haircut. Anyway, uh, let's let's get down to the season. We're doing a season preview here and it is going to be a good one for you guys. We know it's a little bit late, but it's still fun. Um, we've got Kristen and Nico joining us later on to review a couple of other teams. Adam, unfortunately, cannot make it this week uh, due to legal reasons. No joke. Um, but let's get straight into it, Dave. <laughs> uh, where would you like to start in the first five teams that I've listed down for you? I mean, Bournemouth, weirdly, if we start on the podcast... Uh, would be a, a weird place to start. So I'm going to say Chelsea, last season's champions. Um, this season, they aren't shaping up as champions, but why? I think it's an interesting one. I think they've kind of not done too well in the transfer market. I think if they'd not lost Costa, obviously Costa's got these issues with with Conte, he wants to move back to um, you know Atletico Madrid. It seems to be a big hole up front. Um, that will be filled with with a signing um, or a player within the squad, but also Matic. You know, you, you listen to Conte speaking about Matic, how important he was last season, and quite frankly, he didn't want him to be sold. So losing two players that are quite key in that side, I think in the physicality that Costa brings in that final third, not just in an attacking sense, but a defensive sense as well. Costa is fantastic off the ball in terms of how he you know presses and he can allow the likes of um, you know Matic, Kante last season, Pedro and Hazard to almost you know press together and he was always the trigger you know then you flip out like Matic in central midfield strong holding his position allowing Kante to play his natural role that's two really important assets of that squad that have gone well obviously cost is still there but he will be probably moving on before the end of summer um, and of course Matic has moved to United but the replacements there they're good replacements but I don't think 
I don't think it's a time of will these guys be good enough for Chelsea because 100% they will be. Morata is a world-class striker. If he can, you know, keep the rhythm that he had last season, the game time, the goals that he scored, he'll be fantastic for Chelsea. But he's different to Costa. He's coming from a different league. He's played in Italy. He's played in Spain. But the Premier League is is very different to those two leagues. You can quite see that. Maybe Spain and Italy, they've got their similarities. You know, one is a sort of passing, one's a little bit more tactical, but it's not as physical, it's not as robust as the Premier League. You know, you've got um, Morata may turn up uh, against Burnley, for example, against someone like Ben Mee. That's going to be a, a bit of a battle for him. So I just feel like it'll take a little bit of time for Morata to get his legs and also confidence. He's a bit of a confidence player, be it at Juventus or be it at Real Madrid. He needs to get those goals to get him running. And without that, um, I could see him dropping off, you know, I think he needs to score early. And if he does, he'll have a fantastic season. Bakayoko, of course, Matic's replacement. A different player, a player that excelled last season in the Champions League, made more interceptions than any Monaco player in that tournament. But again, it's not Matic, it's a different player. It's a box-to-box player. He's got similarities to Angulo Kante. It's kind of like the signings that have been made were made with the idea that the squad from last season wouldn't be pulled apart. And quite frankly, it has kind of been pulled apart. Yeah, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is that actually... Uh, but taking out some of those key elements uh, has left them with a much weaker spine in this team, or what appears a much weaker spine. We don't know, really. I mean, the, the point is they were supposed to be additions, not necessarily replacements, and that's the difference with this Chelsea team. Conte, of course, uh, also a manager who uh, wasn't particularly happy when Juventus uh, looked to have stripped him uh, of the chance to move a step further. Uh, I mean, he claimed that they you know, for many reasons, uh, weren't backing him financially. Uh, Although they have obviously bought Morata. Do you think, Dave, that uh, this is going to be a very different season uh, for for, uh, Chelsea? I certainly see it being, and a lot of people are billing Chelsea, as quite boring without Hazard. I think that's a big thing. Hazard was the, the creative hub of the side um, in terms of his goals, top goal-scoring midfielder in the Premier League, was fantastic on the left wing. The whole system was built to basically get the best out of Eden Hazard. Arguably, it is a 3-4-3, but Chelsea looked more like they were playing a 5-4-1 at times with the, the back five, the two wing-backs tucking in, and then the, the four in front. But what Hazard did so well was open himself on the counter-attack. He was given that freedom in a way Gary Cahill shuttled over uh, and Alonso. They dealt with sort of the left-hand side defensively, allowing Hazard to drift near it's a coster and just play on the counter-attack. And that's what Hazard does best. Arguably, Hazard, he's not a luxury player, but he's a player that you need to have and you need to build around him in a way. And you need to know that he isn't going to do the defensive work. Um, you know, he's not going to be tracking back. He's not going to be covering. He's not going to be making tackles. That isn't his strength. His strengths are to play on the break. But you have to build a system around that. That's what Conte did so well last season, mm. was basically build a system that allowed Hazard to drift, laterally become a number 10, just pretty much have a free roll over the whole park, pop up on the right pop up on the left centrally but around that this sort of you know the back um, five players and the three midfielders including Pedro who did very well to work back and cover Victor Moses it created sort of a 3-5-2 system obviously a lopsided 3-5-2 towards that left wing but it was almost like you were playing with two forwards in Hazard and, and Costa and it allowed Chelsea to counter-attack they scored more goals than either side in the Premier League last season on the break and Hazard was the one of the top scorers for them on in that method so it's one of these things that Hazard was fantastic and unfortunately, out injured for the start of the season. Again, that's going to hurt Chelsea's rhythm. I just think there's, a, there's too many changing things for this Chelsea team. When you win the, win the Premier League or you win a league, you need to evolve the side. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, it's not evolving the side. It's replacing the players with other players. And then losing someone like Eden Hazard, the player that basically held your attack together last 
season. It's going to be a difficult opening start to the season. And for me, that's why Chelsea may drop off and not retain their Premier League title. Let's talk about someone who won the title the season just before them, Leicester City. Uh, obviously, it's been a fascinating summer for them. They've made some exciting signings, Dave. Um, one of those being... Oh, Inacho. Um, yeah, which route do you think they're going here? Because it's obvious they're trying to move away from what they were doing uh, over the last couple of seasons and expand out into something maybe a little bit more technical? I think I've, I've just, um, you know, I don't see Leicester City doing well at all. I think Craig Shakespeare is going to be the first manager to be sacked in the Premier League. I think it's going to go from bad to worse. I think what Leicester did so well when they won the league, they were compact. They had, you know, great pace, counter-attacking players, the likes of Riyad Mahrez, Jamie Vardy, they were unknowns in the league and now people know what they do. They sit a lot deeper and that's the problem and there's been no transition for me from this Leicester City side being a team that plays on the break and won the league to being more dominant on the ball. I don't think the signings they made this summer have been that great. In Nacho, yeah, it's a hot and cold thing but you don't really need a striker. You've got Jamie Vardy you know, that shouldn't be your first source of problem. I like Abor. I think he's a wonderful player. Sevilla, he's basically like Yamaro Anfellini, um, the Spanish version, should we say. He, he can play attack in midfield. He can play central midfield. But is he that good on the ball? Is he going to unlock a defence like a Coutinho could do, like a Keita could do? Absolutely not. And for me, that's a problem with Leicester City's squad and, and the acquisitions that they've made. It's just they've not really solved their problems. They just seem to be declining. They're in a massive decline. And I feel like with Craig Shakespeare not massively impressed by his management by his tactics I don't think he's changed anything away from what Ranieri did so for me it's, it's going to be a bad season you think Harry Maguire is a good signing I like Harry Maguire he's a quality player but apart from that the transfer window they spent nearly 50 million quid and what they've got Abora, Ian Nacho and Harry Maguire that sort of you know would you be impressed if you were battling mid-table there? You know, if Tony Pulis picked up those three players, they'd be all right signings. And I think if Riyad Mahrez goes and moves to Roma, that opens up another hole. One player that they could look at for inspiration, obviously, is Damari Gray. Ended the season yeah. quite well. Looks like he's really talented. And for me, he's probably the only guy that can save this Leicester City uh, team from battling relegation this season. That's how big it's going to become for them. Because I just don't think their recruitment's been good at all since they won the Premier League. They just haven't moved anything on and that's a big issue and Craig Shakespeare will be the first guy that's going to be collecting his P45. Wow, the first one. That is a big one. Uh, of course, the, the other guy just before as well, Conte, there's also the possibility that he's quite a volatile mm. character this season. Quite a few guys uh, in the league being tipped to lose their job first. Uh, but you're saying it's Craig Shakespeare. Be yeah, I think Craig Shakespeare is a great candidate for that. <laughs> Obviously, a great candidate is quite a bad thing to say. I also think Conte, as you mentioned, a volatile of him, how the Chelsea board, it's appeared that they haven't listened to what he wants, what he wants to sign, who he wants to keep. So that's really bad news for Chelsea. I don't think Conte is going to get sacked, but Conte may just leave. And that's the, you know, that's what you're getting with Conte as a manager. He's very passionate. He's very aggressive. He will, you know, rally the troops. He's almost like your old school commander of an army that he's going to be leading the charge. He's basically your William Wallace of the Premier League. But when William Wallace didn't like how things were going, he rebelled. And unfortunately, that's exactly the same thing that could happen with Conte at Chelsea. And it's not going to be a sacking, but it may be him leaving. Interesting stuff. A uh, manager who's been nothing but consistent over the last few years, Eddie Howe, Dave. Um, or at least that's how we've seen him. Do you think that Eddie Howe's going to continue his track record in the Premier League? I thought last season would be the one where he kind of get caught out and, you know, he hadn't really moved the side on any defensive sense. I didn't feel like he'd shored up in front of the back four by signing 
maybe a physical central midfielder. What he did do, though, was just play four central midfielders across the park in central midfield. Pretty much a little bit uh, Diego Simeone-esque. Not the same style of play, not the same pressing, the aggression, but similar how he's using four central midfielders in midfield that can put the work in, that can, you know, you know can, can make those passes, can find their teammates. And I think with Bournemouth, it's just been a smart transition. It really has. Signing someone like Nathan Key is a bit of a cornerstone. So a player that excelled for them on loan at the first half of the season then went back to Chelsea. Bournemouth is a really good place for someone like Nathan Ake to grow as a player, especially under Eddie Howe. You look at Jermaine Defoe, I don't like that signing of Jermaine Defoe. I think that's a a regressional signing. That's a signing going backwards when Bournemouth should be going forwards. You see what Joshua King did last season. Only Harry Kane and Romelu Lukaku scored more goals in 2017 than Joshua King. Joshua King was a guy that could lead the line for you. Benekafobe has the raw potential to be a good Premier League striker. I think with age, he'll get better. But just signing Jermaine Defoe seems to like break down this forward line when they potentially could have looked to get someone with a bit more guile, uh, a bit more creativity. You know, similar to what they tried to do with Jack Wilshere, they didn't quite work out. You know, more of a creative um, forward, more of like a number 10 than getting a Jermaine Defoe to play behind someone like Joshua King would have made a little bit more sense for me. But Eddie Howe's done great things at Bournemouth. I just think this... This uh, Jermaine Defoe one's a weird one. You I'll think the back four and the midfield... experience, though, Dave, come on. Experience and it, bringing It does, but then... What what is experience when you already have that? What I was just going to talk about them was how their back sort of four players and and their midfielders have been with them since they were in League One. That's great experience. That is great unity within a side. But it's not think, striking experience. I, I understand. Is it? Yeah, but they don't. Do they need that with Joshua King's emergence last season? And I'd argue with strikers, experience. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, you're going to get someone like Miroslav closer. Yeah, you do get players like Jermaine Defoe who still can score at this. Um, you know, this sort of back end of their career. But I'm always thinking Bournemouth is more progressive than that. That's, you know, this is a Sunderland signing. This is a, a, a signing for a team that's going backward, not forward. And I feel like Bournemouth have been going forward. So it just, it's a bit of a strange one. It really is. It's uh, it, just for me, it's a bit of an odd signing for, for Eddie Howe, considering how much money they're going to be paying him per week. The, the big bonus that they would have paid him to, for him to sign on. It just, it seems like there could have been other players they could have gone out and recruited that would have fit Bournemouth a little bit better than, than Jermaine Defoe. But obviously, the next player coming back to uh, the South Coast does make sense, but at the same time, I just don't think it's a forward step, it's a backward step. Robbie Fowler signed for Liverpool a couple of years ago. That was a, it was a step. Um, now, uh, Everton have been making a lot of signings over the summer, Dave. And um, it, I mean, it's certainly reinforced at the club, but is it the level of signing that they need to take the step up into challenging for the top four? I don't think so, no. I think that they're signing players players that will just solidify their position in seventh position. You look at the wage spend in the Premier League, Everton are comfortably in seventh. They are closing in on the top six sides with all the investment they're getting. So that massively corresponds with league position. It's just a fact. The more that you spend on wages, the better players you're going to get, the better league position. It's in a book called Soconomics, which is a great read. Um, which you probably should go and check out. On a tangent, I've been I've been spending money on books recently. Um, I've bought loads of books on football. One of them, Tor, uh, it's like a history of German football that I'm going to start. So if it's good, I'll recommend it on the podcast. And I bought some other books as well, so stay tuned to that. But anyway, go back to Everton. They made some interesting acquisitions. I think signing Sandro Ramirez from Malaga was a good signing. I think Barcelona have missed a trick there. Uh, Ramirez, obviously, being a Barcelona graduate, leaving, going to Malaga, scoring 16 goals in the league, which was the most of any player under the 
the age of 23 and he looked like a proper forward like a player that can throw a step over like a poacher that can score goals but can also drop deep deep he looked like a very very good player and again Barcelona's recruitment or um, lack of belief in their youth is, is in, you know, has been incredible but he will, he'll be good in the Premier League I think he's got the right assets to be a good Premier League striker looking at uh, David Classy signed for Ajax again wonderful business but is that going to explode you to the top four not for me. It's going to be, you know, it's just going to, it's going to do a job in a way. And I feel that's a lot with these Everton signings. Michael Keane, you know, he'll do a job for you, but will he take you to that next level? No. You know, arguably losing Lukaku and getting Keane, Classy and Sandro, that's kind of a, a step back as well, not a step forward. But arguably you can't get someone like Lukaku's quality. So it's, it's one of these difficult things for Everton where they are on this cusp. They're on the cusp here of, of trying to break into the top six, but the signings for me aren't really showing that that's the right way to go. You know, the likes of Wayne Rooney, that's a signing that's poor signing, in my opinion. Wayne Rooney was absolutely atrocious and has been atrocious for a few seasons for Manchester United. And now he's at Everton again, Boyle Club and all this, you know, bravado around. I still don't think he's going to do very good in the Premier League if he plays like he did for United. So it's one of these things where Everton under Koeman, I think they'll get so far. They'll get so far before... Um, Koeman will get sacked and they'll have to go down another route another philosophy so it's been an interesting summer, summer for Everton I think they could you know push it in the in the um, you know in the cups but Premier League wise I just don't think they've done enough especially signing someone like Guilford to get some 45 million or 50 million is absolutely ludicrous yeah it certainly it certainly looks like a bit of a, a statement slash desperation signing depending on how they think they're going to use him there must be a reason why they want him that's but maybe Leighton's Baines free kicks aren't what they used to be um, <laughs> now Dave um let's finish this section on Brighton uh Brighton obviously newly promoted to the Premier League a lot of people expecting them to be the side that finished bottom of the table this season and even if they are quite an exciting um enterprising side do you expect the same I think they'll be second bottom Bottom. I think they'll finish 19th. I've got Huddersfield bottom. Okay, um, Huddersfield bottom. I think they'll they'll start well. Huddersfield. They'll be lovely to watch, but they're just they're, the quality's not there. In terms of Brighton, I think Chris Hutton will have them a little bit more pragmatic, and that's why I think they won't be bottom. They'll be second bottom. But again, the signings haven't been good enough. Their acquisitions. The I just don't think you know the step from Premier League to Championship is so big now given the money that you get from finishing last in the Premier League. But it's a difficult gap to to finish in a way, and you could easily. Newcastle, Brighton and Huddersfield all go back down uh, just because of the, the the distance between the two competitions. But I just think, yeah, Brighton and Chris Hoot, and they've got a good guy in charge. The signings haven't been too great. Again, they're not really... There's nothing there that screams Premier League quality. I think someone like um, Lewis um, Dunk could do quite well in the, the Premier League. But again, how well? I just don't think they'll be good enough. And I do, do think they'll be back down to the Championship, unfortunately. Their last top flight appearance was in 1982-83. Nice. Yeah, quite a while ago now. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, they, they've actually never faced Man City, who they face on the first day of the season. Uh, and a lot of people saying that's a bit of a baptism of fire. Uh, I'm inclined to agree, I've got to believe. Uh, anyway, uh, more in the next part with uh, Kristen and Nico. It's a season preview on the front three, and we've got uh, Chris Hennage. Chris, good to have you. Nice to be had, mate. Um, and always good to have Nico Morales as well. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you as well, man. Um, and let's start with Arsenal because unknown quantities must discuss unknown quantities. 
Uh, now, Chris, uh, when people say unknown quantities, uh, what they generally mean by that is I've seen a reasonable amount of Arsenal actually in preseason and really enjoyed watching the combinations of Lacazette. Maybe the um, the, the idea of playing with Giroud uh, is, is an unusual one for him, considering how he plays for the national team. But you know, there's uh, there, there, there's elements here where you think if Wenger can get this to click then they'll go on a lovely run. But has he solved the issues which faced Arsenal at the end of last season? No, I wouldn't say he has. Um, I, I don't know what they're looking like defensively. There's not been that big centre-back signing. I think centre midfield's okay. I think Xhaka and Coquelin can potentially do something. Um, the thing that I feel like has been the greatest talking point in terms of why Arsenal could win the league is the fact they don't have Champions League and that for them Europa League is potentially an easier competition to deal with which I think it's a fair and valid point but at the same time it doesn't change the fact that there are definitely weaknesses still within that squad and I think they are a, a little bit similar to Spurs in so much as a lot of the faith that's being put in them is because they haven't lost anyone of note so it's a lot of the same guys. It's potentially Alexis if he stays. It's Ozil, Giroud. A, a lot of players that have played together so don't They're have... as good as a new player, Chris. Yeah, you know, they don't have that litmus test to go through, like Mendy and, and Bernardo Silva and, you know, Lindelof, players like that. For them, it's it's already understood and, and expected and you kind of know what they're going to deliver. Um, it, it does, to me, feel like they're kind of missing one or two players though that's that's the thing I mean Lacazette was a massive departure from from what Arsene Wenger usually does in the transfer market in so much as it was a big investment it was a sizable one you could argue it could have been made years ago and and would have saved a lot of time hassle and money most importantly but he has dipped into the transfer market for me personally I get the feeling that he's having one last go at it I know he's contracted I think till 2019 yeah um so he's got two years in him if he wants but you look at the Alexis situation, I assume now at the time of recording with about 20 days to go to the transfer market, he's not going to leave unless he really agitates for a move to Man City. And so to me, that builds towards him having one last real go at the Premier League with Ozil and Sanchez and not really caring if they run the contracts down and, and leave because theoretically it could get to Christmas, they could be top of the league and he could say, okay, now do you want to sign these contracts because we're actually on the way to win something and this could be the start of, of a bright new dawn for, for Arsenal. Nico, it certainly is an interesting one, isn't it? I understand the NBA sort of operates on a different level because it's an isolated, isolated league and there's so much different stuff there. But, right, stick with me just for a second. Teams go through ebbs and uh, flows uh, in the NBA. And so there are seasons where you expect to win the championship, right? Golden State expected for a couple of years to win the championship, but they went through years of not expecting to win the championship. And maybe people sort of went away from the franchise, but they still, there, there, was, there, was, there were entertaining players there. Maybe a lot of people can will be bandwagoners and maybe they're a bad example. Maybe, maybe the Rockets are a better example. Maybe someone like the Knicks where they can fill Madison Square Garden are maybe a slightly better example. But the point is that over those seasons, maybe over the three seasons when you think, I can see where that draft pick's coming, or I can see where you know, we're guaranteed a big signing there, Arsenal always strike me as that team that are managed so efficiently, so well, and with so much planning in certain elements that I don't understand why it then doesn't play out for them. 
And I'm still struggling to see why it isn't playing out for them out on the pitch now and why they haven't solved those problems, which seems so glaringly obvious to everyone from the outside. Yeah, I think there are certain tactical issues that a lot of people tend to blame sort of on the narrative that has been constructed, like you said and pointed out about Arsenal. You know, they have supposedly glaring issues and all of these things seem to come down to a manager that is maybe too old for the Premier League and his ideas while revolutionary at some point in time don't really seem to be cutting it anymore. But I actually think, you know, this, as cliche as it may sound, this this could in fact be the year in which they actually maybe break away from that consistent pattern of that we've seen over the past couple of years, which is, you know, they have a good start. They're at a certain point during Christmas and halfway through the season. And then we sort of see that disassemble towards the end. I think there are a lot of things in place specifically tactically that Arsenal um, seem to have been showing in, in their preseason. Not, not, not that there's a huge deal of importance put on those games, maybe abroad, but certainly during the community shield that, you know, they were missing some of their best players and yet, they, in my opinion, quite comfortably beat the, the champions, although it did win or it did go over to a, a penalty shootout. I think the difference here is that Arsene Wenger is alleviating the pressure of, of a lot of that system, that newer system, that 3 4 3. A lot of the pressure, a lot of the work, a lot of that you know, distribution in the midfield and, and the, the things that need to be done in those areas to players that are not only able to do it are willing to do it a lot of that comes down to the system uh, Dave and I have talked a number of times about sort of the weaknesses of those tactical systems specifically the 3-4-3 how it's really only a two-man midfield but when you have workers like Danny Welbeck and Theo Walcott coming back and making the difference as they did against Chelsea and then you have the option to be very direct you know that's that English style with Giroud or Lacazette possibly and you have all these options and then the alleviation of perhaps them being absent from European competition and I think we actually could see them break away. I was extremely impressed with their performance at the Community Shield, and they were missing their best players. So I think maybe this is the year. You're seriously saying you think Arsenal have got a chance for the title, even I, even though when you, I mean when you do say uh, they are not in European competition, they are in the Europa League. Well, yes, they are in the Europa League, but I think uh, Arsene Wenger in some comments said, you know, if we need to rest guys, if we need to have a break for certain periods of time, if we need to, you know, give the squad a little bit of a rest, we will use the Europa League as that opportunity to play some of the younger guys. So I think in that scenario... Send Steve Bold. Send Steve Bold. Don't even bother going us. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, if they use that competition, I I think that's something that we're not we're not so used to seeing is is such a concrete focus on one competition. And if Arsenal really put maybe the majority of their eggs in in the Premier League basket, then I think they have a real shot. Okay. Uh, are you are we thinking a top four finish in the end for them, or are you seriously thinking this is a challenge for a title here, Chris? Like in the same way as Nico seems to be. I'm just not sure. I'm I'm really not. I mean, I, I see, I see the benefit of having the Europa League in so much as it's just going to be a, a warm up session for the the backup guys. I'm yeah. I'm just I'm I'm honestly just not sure. I think I think uh, I think Lacazette scores goals. I don't think he has an issue with that. I don't think. At the same time, I think it was Rupert Fryer did like the numbers for the European Golden 
ball or, or boy, whichever is the award that like works out who's the best goal scorer. And when he divvied up the points, Lacazette was only marginally ahead of Giroud. So, yeah, he'll get them more goals. The The concern I have with Arsenal is they could theoretically be one of those teams whereby they will score a lot of goals in games that maybe aren't necessary. So, you know, they'll put six past West Brom or six past newly promoted teams. But when it comes to those big games against the rivals, the Chelsea's, the Man United's, that's when they'll they'll potentially f- fall on the backside. Yeah, that's something we haven't addressed at all, actually, in this, is that sort of mentality and the cultivation of which seems uh, quite important. One of the weird things about that, though, is is clearly that a few years ago that mentality did work. I'm just wondering, and it's something that Jens Lehmann, who I think now is part of the back staff, backroom staff, am I right? I still think he's still there. I can't remember if he's still there or not, but... Um, was commenting on and talking about the idea that um, it, the player's mentality isn't quite the same as it used to be. Uh, maybe part of that, as Arsenal have shown, is um, that they are very focused on um, social videos. One with Per Mertesacker chatting with Arsene Wenger in pre-season. Um, sometimes do you ever see the benefits of battening down the hatches? Nico, just not seeing too much, not seeing behind the curtain? No, I think a lot of that analysis comes from a generation. You know, we talk about some of the older players, like you mentioned, uh, you know, a former Arsenal player. And, and, you know, their perspective, they can, it's more than valid and, and they're more than welcome to have it. But it is, you know, not necessarily a misunderstanding, but that's their perspective of someone that, you know, didn't grow up with it or, or hasn't had the same experiences with it. And I just feel, you know, that the talk of the difference in mentality, you know, the game is a lot different than it was 10 to 20 to 15 years ago. And, and because the mentality appears different, whether externally or internally, I don't necessarily think that it's always a detriment and, you know, they're more than welcome to to have that, you know, difference of opinion. Um, But I, I, I just, I struggle to, to see that it's, it's always a negative, you know, it's a part of the game. It's a part of our culture now today. And I I don't see it as a, as a thing that's taking away from the team. Let's talk about a manager who's also been charged, Chris, with uh, channeling resources in in recent years. Uh, Burnley's um, Sean Deitch, yeah, um, he's a he's a curious one in some ways, but I mean he stayed true to himself. As summer, he's bought a lot of British and, and Irish uh, players. Given that, um, oh god, who's that Stoke player? The forward, his name is escaping me. Uh, the guy Great hair. Uh, for three, John Walters. Yes, thank you, John Walters. So he he makes it a, a British and Irish transfer window for them. But yeah, I mean Jack Cork has come in, Phil Bardsley's come in. They're all steady Premier League players. So like no, there's no risk in buying those guys. Realistically, um, the the concern with them is they've just lost Andre Gray for or Andre Gray, excuse me, for eighteen and a half million. Ex homophobe, of course. Uh, yeah, no, it's not a terrible deal because eighteen and a half million is a lot of money, especially for someone who only scored nine goals in, in thirty two last season, who was in the last year of his contract. But given Dyche's fairly small circle of of scouting, I wasn't sure who he brings in. I mean, they've had a bid for Sam Klukas, 
rejected on Thursday. So there's an early move, but obviously Klukas is a midfielder, not a forward. And I can't imagine he's just going to rely on Sam Vokes to pick up the slack. So I don't know who he gets in. It, there's not... To me, there's not like a wealth of possible targets in there who could could come in because I don't think there's anyone in the second tier that hasn't already moved. British Sambalonga might have been a shout, but he's already gone to Borough. Um, Chris Wood, maybe, but I don't think Leeds cash in for 18 and a half. You look no. at 2025, 20, and even then you've got a similar kind of issue with with like Glenn Murray and, and even Dwight Gill where you're hoping that the form from the championship translates. There's no guarantee it does. Hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, uh, there is an interesting side to it as well, the analytics side, of course, to Burnley, or the sort of, um, you know, the performance and analytics side of things, isn't it, Nico? Uh, a lot of people looking into XG this season. Are you buying into that and the analysis of Burnley through that? Yeah, I think, you know, I had my, my points about expected goals um, entering the mainstream media with you guys earlier, and maybe we'll touch on that at a later point, but specifically talking about Burnley, I think a lot of people have expectations of Sean Dyche because of the things that he was able have has been able to do for the last couple of seasons with Burnley. Um, a lot of people are impressed. And I think really specifically last, last season, you kind of have to ask yourself, do you believe in the overperformance of Sean Dyche's you know he overperformed expected goals, uh, expected goals um, against. And when you look at uh, when you look at some of the other coaches that do similar things, like um, Lucien Favre, who's done it consistently, then uh, you kind of struggle to see the same pattern with Sean Dyche, and you kind of have to believe that maybe they were dancing between the raindrops, um, as somebody else put it. And the reason I say that is because. You know, if you look at how maybe someone like Favre, who has done so consistently, structures his defensive um, actions, the, the the players put a lot of pressure on the ball, but they don't actually try to take it away. So the the shot quality comes down, even though the shot uh, the shot place is is quite good. Whereas Shandice while he does have a, a defensive mantra and a philosophy that has done Burnley well over the past couple of seasons, I think in the Premier League, um, they were conceding in a lot of bad places and, and they had an exceptional goalkeeper last year as, as well as some pretty good defenders in Michael Keane. Um, so I, I really don't think that he'll be able to to yet again overperform the, the expected goals. I think there's a certain regression to the mean that will happen. Um, and, and with that, I, I, I have to imagine that Burnley will struggle. Very nice. Uh, Crystal Palace, of course, Chris. Uh, De uh, is, he, is he the right fit? Um, I mean, it's certainly so that uh, in his... His CV says great manager. His CV also says maybe poor fit. Um, Come on, don't and don't go back to Syria for me. That's just silly. No, no, the, the time it ended like it, it was a bad decision to go there. I think that was the only mistake he really made, though. Like him joining a week before the season starts is just a bad idea from start to finish. The thing with these time at Ajax, and I've read, I saw bits and pieces. Um, read a really good deconstruction by Priya Ramesh. Um, spoke a little bit to, to Mikhail Youngsman as well. And and he sort of went on this development path of his own where at first he was quite attacking and, and expansive and, you know, almost a, a, aggressive in the way that they went forward. But then 
over time, he sort of got a bit insular and, and made them so kind of laborious in their attack that they weren't an exciting team to watch. Um, I think they only finished top scorers in the league in one of his seasons. Um, but they had like a, a really good, if not the best defensive record in a number of them. And for me, like that's the microcosm of, of Deborah Ajax is, yeah, the defense was good, but the attack really wasn't. And I don't know if you can always do that in the Premier League. I think, yeah, anyone who shows up the defense is, is going to improve a team, but you need to show some intent going forward as well. I don't think you can sit and pick teams apart really cautiously like you could maybe in other leagues. Um, and certainly you don't have that sort of moment of brilliance, if you will, that maybe you do with an Ajax when you're playing against teams that, that aren't as good as you, where, you, where you're the biggest fish in that pond. Um, his signings this summer, like if I look at them just as players, they're all fairly exciting if I'm a Palace fan. Like Fosu Mensah, I think, is, is a good player, quite versatile. I think he needs to nail down a position. Um, Loftus-Cheek, again, has a lot of potential. Giardio Vedeveld is coming off a bad injury but has potential in him again so they're all kind of players that could grow the thing I don't understand is two of those are loan signings Loftus-Cheek and Fossi Mensa. so I don't see the long-term benefit to Palace because if they go and have an amazing season then the parent clubs will snap them back up and probably either play them or loan them out again to continue their development if they tank then that's two-thirds of your business that isn't is neither use nor ornament to you really because you know they're, they're not part of your club so there's no real um incentive to play them in the long term for you guys and and in the short term they're taking up space they're taking up wages and i imagine both both of those players are, are fairly handsomely paid um and i just wonder if it's a consequence of them lacking time more than anything um because i don't think the ball was in uh, a late appointment in the summer but i would question how much time he's had to kind of build his own ideas in terms of okay this is what we need this is who we need uh i, I think his move there is great for the younger players the the zaha uh, the zahas of the squad um i think he'll improve them I'm not entirely sure what it means for the likes of kabai and those who are a little bit older i think over the next 12 months you'll probably see kabai and well in the next six months i would argue you'll see delaney especially uh phased out in fact i'll be amazed if fossi mensa doesn't take delaney's spot in the team wow uh yeah uh and, and that'll make manchester united fans very happy as well but i'm sure we'll hear more about that from dave later on um defensive possession though nico it looks very similar to a another dutch manager that we've seen before in this league and people weren't exactly pleased with his presence yeah, unfortunately for Crystal Palace fans, I think it'll be a similar, uh, a microcosm of almost what Louis van Gaal did with Manchester United in the sense that, you know, they may dominate possession. Yeah, because I, I think as Chris, you know, touched on, I'll, I'll sort of piggyback off some of the points that he made. I think it was towards the latter stages of his Ajax career, it was uninspired possession. And in a league where he dominated, you know, there was a, there was a dominant uh, sense of the talent with everything that Ajax has been able to do over the years because they are a superpower of the Dutch league. Um, then, you know, he was able to maybe get away with with a bit more nuanced possession things and defense uh, defense with the ball by having the possession the majority of the time. You know, those Cruyffian ideals that, you know, if the, if the opposition doesn't have the ball, then they cannot score. And I think 
having going to a team like Crystal Palace that doesn't necessarily dominate the talent pool in that respective league and then going with that very cautious possession, I would be very wary as to what happens with De Boer at Crystal Palace because I really don't think it's the right appointment. I think if you're a table at the at the or if you're a, a team at the lower end of the table in the Premier League, then you need to be you need to adjust to the league and you need to be direct and you need to do certain things and that's just a play style that in my opinion does best in, in those situations. A non you know non risk taking possession system headed by Frank DeBoer that isn't necessarily uh, you know blessed with the the best talent in the world in my opinion is the exact wrong way to go so I think they'll really struggle and bar you know the the board already saying that they either they said they will not sack or that you know the the manager has their complete vote of confidence despite the results for X amount of time. I would say that he might he could have been or or still might be one of the the first uh, the first to go in the Premier League. That sort of bring about an interesting conversation, doesn't it? I mean, I've been tipping Conte to go all preseason just because it is it's fun. Um, but at the same time, he's kind of perfect for them, though, isn't he? Conte in a lot of ways because Chelsea. If you think about it, like Arsenal and Chelsea are diametrically opposed to me because Arsenal is the foundation of loyalty it's keeping Wenger on longer than they should have whereas Chelsea in the time since the the Invincibles and, and then also Arsenal's last title they've won the Champions League they won Premier Leagues um, have they won an FA Cup maybe? a League Cup? Like they, they've won stuff Probably, basically yeah. no, that, well, and a lot they, of that yeah, is because of short termism like a lot of it is because they got Ancelotti in they got Mourinho in they, they, I wouldn't say they don't have loyalty so much as they're quite happy to cut someone away if they think there's a better option out there. I, yeah, and I think a lot of Antonio Conte's style is it's not a marathon, it's a sprint. And with everything, with how thin their squad is and how everything's shaping up, I think, I think you're right. It'll be a very short relationship between Conte and Chelsea. I don't think it'll last more than three seasons, but um, yeah, I mean, we'll see how... Yeah, after the documentary made, I mean, I find it really interesting talking about Conte, um, how different people seem. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting because it would almost be, uh, I mean, the funny thing that I've sort of been discussing is, will he be sacked or will he sack Chelsea? Because he could be the first manager to say, I just, I can't be bothered with this. No, they'll sack him. Okay, interesting. I'll be interested. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, managers want their severance, right? But then Conte is just such a... An egomaniac. I don't actually think he is an egomaniac. I, uh, well, no, actually, so? that's not true. Yeah, no, I do think he's an egomaniac. Um, I know there's something quite sweet about Conte. He seems like a very sort of uh, caring guy, although a lot of guys in the Premier League do. De Boer maybe not so much. Um, Chris, it was interesting to see De Boer involved in that conversation in preseason uh, where Sky Sports put took a load of managers up an expensive tower in, um, I can't remember the country, and um, made them fight. And yeah, and then and then it may, basically it was a conversation dominated by Tony Pulis and Jurgen Klopp. Something I never <laughs> was it in China. Say. I think it was in China. I don't think it was China. They, I think it was somewhere in uh, because they said was it like the Burj Khalifa was nearby or something like that. Because they talked about Pulis playing out in the. Because uh, I didn't know this. Pulis must have had a spell out in Asia. Um, that sounds like a, a libel yeah. <laughs> action waiting to happen. Um, but yeah, I, I actually thought it was quite a good program. I thought they were all uh, quite relaxed and, and a little bit more open than you usually see. Um, I don't know if it's well the round table effect and, and the fact that you know 
it's just the vibe was a lot more relaxed i felt and it, it you got a little bit of an insight and a window into um into their respective uh, kind of kind of mentalities um because they're all in different they were in different boats obviously i mean pulis isn't shopping at the same table that uh that shakespeare or Klopp is so yeah i, yeah, I quite enjoyed an awkward moment wasn't it during the the whole uh interview or sort of chat because uh there was one manager it might have been pulis who said and i'm just picking up the scraps and then they said jürgen you're clearly feasting at the top table. And he was like, <laughs> well, uh, what can I say? <laughs> and you're like, um, well, that's awkward. Um, interesting. Because he folded up the photograph of more Salah and put it back in his wallet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I, I guess he hasn't spent, hasn't spent the exorbitant amounts yet that maybe FSG were expected to spend. Um, he's had that, a good window. Though. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we'll see come the end of the window, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you evaluated at two different points before and after, but from what they've done so far, I mean, they got Dom Solanke for, I think, is it three million or something in compensation? Yeah. Um, personally, when I saw him briefly for Vitesse, I didn't see anything earth shattering, but I give him credit; he's looked very good in pre-season. He looked very sharp. Um, looked very hungry. Yeah, and he's clearly, it, it, let's face it. That also, he's left Chelsea because he wasn't promised first team time, which means he must be thinking he can go to Liverpool and get that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it, you look at like the last deal that kind of went this way, which I think was Joe Cole. I, it's it's pulls apart for me because I think Joe Cole had achieved everything. He was a bit spent when he sure, got to Liverpool. Sure, the last deal that was like that was. Um, was uh, Daniel Sturridge? Uh, yes, you could be right there. Sorry, I meant moving on a free transfer. Sorry, yeah, um, yeah. But, but still, you get my point, actually. Daniel Sturridge, sort of a good young player, frustrated for time in the team, frustrated with his position, got to Liverpool, found, found, found great form alongside a South American that wanted to leave the club. Um... I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing. So Solanke has a lot to prove because he, he he's just won the World Cup with the under twenties. He's got a fairly decent pedigree and reputation in the game, and now it's a case of whether he can actually deliver it and show whether show Chelsea that they were wrong to let him go. I think. I mean, even Andrew Robertson, who I don't think is the greatest defender as a fullback, which sounds quite a damning indictment, but I promise it's not. Um, he costs. What was it? A million once they dealt Kevin Stewart to to Hull. Sure, yeah. yeah I, right. I don't think that's a bad window when you look at. I mean, Salah Salah is the crown and the jewel because uh, the the jewel and the crown, excuse me, because he's only cost forty million, and he was one of the best producers in Serie A last season. He's quick. He's dynamic. He gives them an option that's not Sadio Mane, basically. So yeah, I don't think he's had a terrible, you know, summer. I don't think he's addressed every issue. Of course not. But at the same time, it's, it's not September 1st yet, so he could still find a way to sign Van Dijk, even if, if Southampton are putting up a good show at the minute. Yeah, Letizier is certainly enjoying himself for that one, isn't he? Um, Matt Letizier, the most passive-aggressive man in football. Um, although there are also some interesting comments that I've seen over the last few days. Obviously, Liverpool fans slightly hypocritical in the way that they cover the two transfer sagas that seem to be dominating their summer right now. If a player wants to move to Liverpool... They are ambitious. If a player wants to move away from Liverpool, they have 
no morals. Um, of course, we're talking Coutinho, Nico. Um, Coutinho or no Coutinho, are Liverpool still a side that can challenge for top four? I think without Coutinho, you miss out on a lot, but it's he's not someone that is, in my opinion, as good as people say he is, but that's besides the point. I think... I think Liverpool will go on to do really, really exciting things this season, especially with Mohamed Salah, especially with, uh, you know, Jurgen Klopp maybe maybe listening to the podcast and saying, you know what, Nico, you're right. I do, I do need to evolve tactically, go into the 4-4-2 diamond as well as the 4-3-3. I think Adam Alana is a really big miss out of their season, and that sort of illuminates one of the things that maybe they didn't cover in the transfer window or are yet to cover, which I think is more depth at central midfield. I think, you know, obviously someone like Naby Keita would have been amazing, but there are other players out there, uh, possibly someone from Nice um, that, that could come in and do really good things. And I think to combat and to to elevate the level of uh, you know Liverpool Football Club to the to the status that they want to achieve, you know they are going to need that more depth, especially considering the the style of play that Jurgen Klopp has. So, I would say they had a decent window and they're on their way up, but it, it is it is down to the management and and how he how he chooses to do things. A lot of people are saying FSG are responsible for the way the club is currently run. Uh, partly because they are currently responsible for the way the club is run, um, but I mean. Jurgen Klopp maybe taking some of the flack there or maybe taking none of the flack. At one point, he did believe that maybe he was going to be signing. Uh, the big man Van Dyke went away, wore an umbrella on his head and came back to the idea that actually transfers were not that easy. Uh, that was a very different time in Liverpool history, uh, maybe a month ago. Um Either way, it's been an interesting summer for Liverpool. They've had some great preseason results, and then obviously the loss to Atletico Madrid in the end of the Audi Cup. Um, we'll see. Um, I still think they could finish top four, especially if Coutinho puts in a final season for them. Um, let's go across to his younger brother, if you like, Chris. Um, and also to the club which provided Liverpool with the basis which then they built their modern dynasty out of, or semi-modern dynasty. Uh, that dynasty has somewhat faded since, but yeah. They, My favourite prog rock band, semi-modern dynasty? Said, yeah. Uh, my second favourite, actually. Um, but anyway, uh, Huddersfield, uh, Bill Shankly's original home, and of course now home to David Wagner. Um, there's a lot to like about him. And there's even more to like about his recruitment, Chris. Yeah, yeah. The, I didn't realise actually that about Bill Shankly. There's a, a beautiful synergy, I guess, between that, the exchange of ideas. That's why um, I listen to the podcast. It, it is. That's why I listen to you, mate, because I learn a lot. Yeah. Um, there, there's some familiarity with Huddersfield's business. I mean, you've got Aaron Moy, you've got Casey Palmer. They're both uh, known faces at, at Huddersfield and, and did fairly well. To, to varying degrees for them last season. Um, I w- initially, I was surprised they took Palmer over Izzy Brown, um, but talking to some Huddersfield fans, um, it seems like they're much happier to, to have Palmer back than Brown. Um, then they've kind of gone into Europe, done a, a bit of business, um, got Mooney from Montpellier, Depot from Porto, who's a big, just kind of truck of a man. <laughs> um a transit van, if you will. I might, my, my, that one might escape our American listeners, but uh, makes sense. But like a Dodge Ram, if you will, of a, of a 
centre forward. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be excited about. I think even if they were to go down, you've got guys like Tom Ince who will transition back to that league, no problem. And and you would think be be decent for them to have another go at. But I mean, I'm speaking light years ahead of the minute. The the concern I've got with them is they haven't um, they haven't been able to to sign a defender, which that that does kind of concern me. Mm. Um, because defensively they were terrible last season. Um, they had negative goal difference going into the playoffs. Towards the back end of the season, the wheels fell off massively. Um, and, I mean, I don't actually think they scored... I think there's a wonderful stat. Like, they didn't actually score a goal in the playoffs. So the the one goal they did score to get to Wembley was an own goal from Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, that if, they've if not memory serves. I think so actually kind of, they've not. And I read this earlier, uh, and I'll find it for you because it is a lovely little Opta stat. Uh, Huddersfield. Here we go. Where is the Huddersfield? Where is it? Um, have not scored yeah here we go no Huddersfield player has scored for the Terriers in the last 569 minutes of football in the Football League so that was definitely worth the wait it was yeah because it allows me to make the point that that could seem quite worrying if you're a Huddersfield fan I also wonder if that's not the relentless nature of the championship just wearing down a team that won't have to play as many games this season Mm. because obviously it's only it's only 38 in the top flight and and there hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, their style when they choose kind of their, their plan A, if you will, is very reliant on Kloppian principles, if you will, closing down, shutting space, waiting for a mistake to count, count, counter and capitalize on high up the field. Um, that with with less games, with more recovery time, all those kind of things, that could be perfect for them. I'm still a little bit concerned. I like Michael Heffler as a as a as a bloke, if you will. He seems like quite a fun guy. At the same time, I watched Daryl Murphy um, get the better of them at one stage last season. I saw a lot of really middle of the road championship strikers get the better of them. 
And I mean, the one time they came up a really against a really good passing side, which was Fulham right near the end of the season, they were absolutely torn to shreds. So the time off may have allowed them to recover and they may be fresh and, and able to, you know, have a good run at it again. But I've definitely got concerns about Huddersfield going into the season just because they haven't strengthened in key positions. In in mm-hmm. at the back, I mean specifically, they've they've signed a right back or they're about to uh, year them from uh, Barnsley. But again, he's not proven at the top level. So there's there's a lot of issues I've got with them at the back. Um, as much as I think they've done all right, um, yeah, as much as I think they've done all right in the final third. Yeah. Um, any any thoughts on uh, Huddersfield that you'd like to add there, Nico? Because obviously a lot of people talk about their pressing. A lot of people uh, talk about the fact they are going to be intense this season. I said I think they're going to bloody quite a few noses, but still, sadly, just go down. Yeah, look on my work, see mighty in despair is, is what I imagine uh, David Wagner will be hoping that, that, that he'll be able to say to, to Jurgen Klopp and maybe a few of his contemporaries. But I, I, I honestly don't haven't seen too much of, uh, of Huddersfield, and I, I couldn't uh, with great confidence talk about talk about them from from any perspective so i think you guys have covered it adequately thank you very much we'll see in a little while (laughs) dave dave Dave, Manchester United, let's start now. A specialist subject for you and many people out there because they're such a loved club in the Mm. league. Um, Now, good signings in the summer as well. You know, very Mourinho-esque, but high-profile signings. Matic, uh, Lukaku, two or more or less instant starters, right? Yeah, I think they, they instantly come into the side. I think with Lukaku... You're going to get what well, you got at Everton. You got this this raw striker that loves to throw a step over that when he's 1v1 with a defender, Lukaku will probably score a goal. And we saw that last season that he, he got a bit more clinical. Um, you know, the movement in the penalty area was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, carried carried Everton on his shoulders um, in, in terms of goals. So it's it's a quality acquisition. And again, going back to the, the sort of, you know, the, the Murata, Belotti, Lukaku sort of problem that United were linked with these three forwards and all would have fit United in different ways really well it kind of comes down to um you know spending 75 million do you want to spend it on a guy that scored in italy the champions league and, and spain or a guy that scored in italy but scored prolifically in italy that's physical that would suit the premier league or lukaku who scored consistently in the premier league and i think that, that's the that was the difference i think that is it that it breaks down to um you know someone doing it in the Premier League versus not. And I think that's where you've got 75 million. Like, you've got to get someone proven. And I think what Mourinho has done is he's signed someone that's proven. We saw it at the Super Cup. Yeah, he missed a chance, but he scored a goal. His movement could have been a bit better. He had a good battle with the two centre-backs. But I'd like to see a bit more from his movement. I like Lukaku when he's dribbling at you. I really like him when he pulls wide, when he picks the ball to feet, and when he gets his head up and going. You know, this first touch rubbish that's going around, um, I don't agree that Lukaku has a bad, bad first touch. I think it's a slightly different technical issue that he doesn't deal with pressure that well when when receiving the ball. I think when he's in open space, when he's dropped off the centre-backs, he's, his first touch is fantastic. But it's that pressure that's the kind of issue. In terms of last season, Lukaku had fewer uh, bad touches in the Premier League, a bad touch defined by Octa is a 
this control of the ball than the likes of um, Costa, Sanchez, Harry Kane, you know, your classic Premier League strikers. I think it's a little bit misleading saying Lukaku has a bad touch. I think it is that pressure thing. But what he will bring, the pace, the power, the link-up with um, Paul Pogba is going to be great. Pogba loves that quarterback pass from defensive midfield over the top. What does Lukaku like doing? Running on to the ball. So that is a match made in heaven. Obviously, pals on and off the pitch. So that will really work out for United. And, you know, his chance conversion last season was a lot better than Zlatan's. Zlatan's was around, yeah. uh, I think it was around 13 12, 13%, Lukaku's was 23. So that is an instant impact in terms of the big chances that Zlatan missed last season the most in the Premier League. Hopefully Lukaku will take those chances. Not like against Real Madrid where he blazed that shot over the bar from about six yards out. But again, a fantastic signing for United and him linking with a, you know, a likes of Anthony Martial or a Mkhitaryan or a Marcus Rashford, of course, as a striker in a 3-5-2 really excites me. It excites me with the movement, the the flexibility in that system. But Lukaku, great acquisition. Then we move on to Nemanja Matic. What a signing. What an absolute signing. You know, you're thinking, what a, you know, you need a player. United need a strong presence in defence and midfield. They've needed that for since the days of Sir Alex Ferguson. They've needed that physicality and they've never had that. Marouane Fellaini was, was brought in to be that, but Fellaini is an attacking midfielder, not a defensive midfielder. What Matic is is a pure defensive midfielder. Tackling, win the ball back and give it to, you know, shipping it, playing passes. I think what we saw against Real in, in the Super Cup is his passing range. Played a fantastic ball with the outside of his foot to play Paul Pogba clean for a goal. And then later on, a lovely reverse pass to Ander Herrera. And I think in this 3-5-2 way, or two central midfielders need to go ahead, need to drift wide, need to almost become two number 10s. Your defensive midfielder needs to find them. And we saw that against Real, that Matic is so good at finding them. So I think with Matic instantly comes in um, in terms of physicality again going to the rail game, he won four out of four of his tackles, kept it very simple. It was just a great performance and a performance that gives United hope in defensive midfield and Matic, you know, signing a player from Chelsea, as I mentioned before, Chelsea this season will struggle because of the uh, transfer business, it's been poor um, but Matic going from that to United is an instant, you know, it's an instant advantage that United now have over Chelsea last season when United got beat 4-0 at Stamford Bridge, yeah Kante got the, the plaudits for his performance in centre midfield, scored a great goal. You want to watch Matic back on that day and how destructive he was on Marouane Fellaini, how destructive he was on Paul Pogba. But now United have that in their midfield, so it's only a good thing. And in terms of allowing fullbacks to push on, allowing wingbacks to push on in the 3-5-2, Matic is your perfect guy there. So the two signings that they bought from the Premier League have been you know, great acquisitions. Weaknesses, though? Do United have any weaknesses back there? Is it still the fullbacks, possibly, defensively? I think the I think it's the consistency that's the weakness. The consistency of the attackers, the consistency of the, the fullbacks. I think that's the two problems. If United can get a run where Lukaku's on great form with a Mkhitaryan, with a Marcus Rashford, with an Anthony Martial, that'd be perfect. But I think it's the consistency and it's the minutes that Mourinho needs to commit. You look at the attacking midfielders United had last season; they didn't play enough minutes. They were all south of 2,000 minutes. Eden Hazard was on 3,400 minutes. Obviously, the best attacking midfielder in the Premier League. So that's just what you've got to think about. That the, the Mourinho you know, needs to stick. He needs to stick with a Mkhitaryan. He needs to stick with an Anthony Martial or Marcus Rashford. Whoever it may be, whoever he believes in, he needs to commit to build a partnership with Romelu Lukaku, be it in a 4-3-3 with a wide player, be it in a, the, the, the sort of the two-man strike force in a 3-5-2. It's all about that relationship and all about getting that run of form. Confidence is a big, big thing for attackers. And unfortunately, Mourinho's rotation of his side last season didn't allow that enough. It didn't allow these players to get their foot in the door and you know really... You know, b- believe in themselves, and I think that's a big thing. Confidence is a huge thing. You look at Martial; when he's confident, he can kill anyone. He can beat anyone one v one. And arguably, the three five 
two will, will allow him to open up the pitch a bit more. He's not just going to have to go down the byline or cut in. He can now go just go forward in a way. There's there's three options for him. He you know can go take either of those routes to goal. But I think Martial is a, is a classic confidence player. When he's confident, one of the best in the world. Obviously, he's a young lad still, so it's the consistency that he needs to improve. But I think it is that. It's, it's, it's breeding confidence and... And consistency at fullback. I'd like to see Matteo Damian playing wingback in a 3-5-2 every single week because I think he's got quality in that position. He played that position for Torino, but it's committing to that. You know, you the likes of Luke Shaw, who's been in and out, you know, needs to... This is, again, it's a, every season, this is Luke Shaw's season. No, this is the season where he saves his United career. Um, you know, if he doesn't perform this season, then United are right to let him go. Well, not let him go, maybe let him go on loan to for him to get his confidence back. Again, this United team, hopefully, with the signings of Matic... And Lukaku will be a bit more like they're, they're killers, that they, they know how to see games out. They know how to, to do things. They've got that experience. So it's, it's a big, big, big summer for United, but a good summer, in my opinion. We obviously also have to cover uh, Spurs as well. Adam isn't here for that. But Dave, uh, the worrying thing for Spurs is the, the hemorrhaging of players that might happen. Well, two big players. Um, I guess the reassuring thing for them would be that uh, Danny Rose and Kyle Walker feel replaceable. They do feel replaceable, and I think they, they, they are replaceable, but at the same time, that will take some coaching and some development of, uh, of a younger player, maybe. So they've got the great guy in there. Obviously, Potch is, is the perfect manager to for you to go, OK, we've just lost our stars. We've got these two young lads um, that we've brought in from either the academy or we've brought in from abroad or internally in the, in the Premier League league or even Fulham you know someone like Ryan Sessegnon Pochettino would be perfect to develop Ryan Sessegnon in an attacking sense and a defensive sense so I don't think it's like you mentioned I don't think it's all over I think Spurs what Spurs needed to do is keep their front four together they needed to keep Harry Kane Deli Alley, Christian Eriksen and Son that was the most important thing I think you know wing backs are important in the modern day they're so important providing width especially for Spurs system that is quite narrow and with the, their attacking players it is important but like you mentioned I think think they are replaceable. It's, it's obviously a losing Danny Rose. Yeah, that's massive. But at the same time, to, to come out of here and solve this with coaching. Yeah, although part of that does also seem to be... I mean, uh, Pochettino's philosophy has always relied on the idea, though, hasn't it? That, um, A, everyone buys in. But B... Um, that then he has the right people so it's not it's not the disaster that maybe people from the outside are talking about and i find it very unusual that people think it's cool for danny rose to go out there and say the things that he said right shocking absolutely shocking like to be honest i don't think there's a, there's nowhere back for him if i were pochettino i'd be you know right we've got to see them because you can't like you're saying it's the pochettino philosophy and you made a great documentary on it on TFR that you could probably still go and check out, hopefully. I think so. If they've not deleted it, I imagine they haven't deleted it. But, you know, they, they speak about the, you know, it's the unity and it, it's become, coming together as a squad. And, you know, you, you mentioned this thing countless times on the podcast. It's about, you don't you don't sign for Spurs to play for Spurs. You sign for Spurs to train with Spurs. And quite frankly, Danny Rose's comments and going to someone the paper that I don't want to mention yeah. it's just rotten that's so bad it, and yeah. as a future employer of Danny Rose you've got to take that into consideration because that is that is massive like not d- dissent what's the word it's, 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 it's almost it's almost treachery in a way and that there's there's a little yeah. bit of um there's I mean first of all going to the sun you've got to be a filthy piece of shit anyway to do that um but <laughs> I mean at the same time there's also 
there's also the idea that, I mean, people are saying things like, oh, well, we want modern players to be more honest, etc. And I agree, but Rubbish. when it, and, and I agree, in other leagues, it, it is perfectly acceptable, especially in things like the NBA, where people say, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reaching for another level or whatever. But it also seems like disrespectful to, um, to a, a project that's being built to then talk about players you have to Google and things like that. You just think, I mean, it's not it's not our fault you have poor football knowledge or you don't watch other leagues in the <laughs> yeah. industry that you work in. It's not like it's, you know, why should it be our fault that you have to Google people? What your lack of knowledge is suddenly our fault. Um, and then also you'd imagine that, you know, there's a lot of people in the dressing room who will be thinking, well, screw you, I had to Google you when I arrived. Europe's top, he's not, he's not Marcelo or Danny Alves, is he? He's hardly... Um, he's hardly one of those guys. So, yeah, I, I just think that it stinks a lot of um, a player who's trying to force a move because if Pochettino sees this, he knows that it's rebellion against him and he's he's going to uh, let him leave the club. Pochettino doesn't want that kind of guy around. Uh, where do you think that leaves them this season, though, Dave? It's not like it's the biggest loss, but it also leaves them without two pretty key players um, in a system which really utilises the fullbacks really effectively. Yeah, well, it, you know, given it be a four-two-three-one or the three-four-three they played last season, again, very narrow. It was almost like they were playing Deli Ali and Christy Eriksson narrow as two number tens behind uh, someone like Harry Kane. You no, know, Deli Ali playing as this sort of second striker, making a late run to the box, and Eriksson drifting into the inside right channel and creating. Go back to the, you know, you think of the Chelsea game last season where they ended Chelsea's run of thirteen games on the bounce. The goals were fantastic. It was beautiful in that system. You know, Eriksson and drifting into the inside right channel and just simply crossing to the back post for a second strike, Adele Alley making the late run in from into the you know to score a goal. But again, it's that narrowness in the final third that allows Spurs to play their good football because the players are so close, they can play these little short passes, they can run off each other and so forth. And that's why it's so good to watch. But again, that means that you need your fullbacks to go on. You look at Manchester City last season, why they were so rubbish to watch was because they were narrow in the final third. They had these great attacking players that all like to come central, but the wing backs weren't getting forward. And that's the problem. You know, one replacement that's been talked about in the media is Sissoko at wing-back. For me, if you were going to play Sissoko anywhere, or if you were to say, what is Sissoko as a player? Quite frankly, he could be a perfect wing-back. What he has is his pace, his strength. Mm. He knows how to go around a man when he's dribbling. Positionally, yeah, there'll be a bit of work there, but that's all of a coaching thing. He has the raw attributes to be a really good wing-back. And for a player that's not really found a position on the pitch, yeah, he looked, he's looked quite good at times in a 4-4-2 diamond on the right wing that's quite a similar position to maybe a you know a wing back so Suzuko could be a blessing in disguise you know 30 million or that it was it kind of it's starting to make sense now that Suzuko could actually make a really good right wing back technically good so it's going to be an interesting one but the left hand side is an issue obviously Ben Davis was good last season in spells but he isn't the same level but again it's that development Ben Davis has the materials to be a good wing back you know if you were to say Ben Davis versus Danny Rose I could see them being at a similar level when they hit their peak. So, it's again, it's all the Pochettino working with Suzuko on his positioning, working with Ben Davis maybe on his attacking game that isn't at the level of Danny Rose's. That's where what he needs to do. You know, it's, it's all about the work on the training ground. And that's why it's so exciting for Spurs because, quite frankly, you know, I've had them in on my two predictions. I've had them once third and once fourth. I think they will be third or fourth. I still don't think that they've done enough to break the, the top two. Um, this time... I think they'll still be there in the Champions League. I think, again, Pochettino, for some reason, isn't a fan of the Champions League or isn't a fan of European football. He seems to 
you know, save his, his, his assets and his resource for the league. So maybe that's again what Spurs will do is they'll drop out the Champions League again, they'll drop into the Europa League, they'll fall out, but then they'll be focusing on the league again. And if they, they've given that time to these these fullbacks, these wingbacks, whoever they're going to bring in, they'll still do very well. And going back to what I said, started off this Spurs conversation, it's the front four, it's, it's Harry Kane. Harry Kane will score goals again. Yeah, he'll have a slow start as he always does, but... You know, 29 league goals last season. You could easily see him see him scoring over 30 this season. Deli Ali as well. He's only going to score more goals. He's only going to get better. Christian Eriksen is just becoming a classic playmaker. Someone that you know Barcelona should be looking at maybe to throw in to replace Andres Iniesta in the long run. But at the moment, he's rocking at Spurs and he's playing the best football of his career. So it's 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 a good time to to be Spurs. And the one thing, the Wembley thing. I don't think it's going to be a, it's going to be an issue, but they'll get adjusted to it. One thing that you know, I was at Wembley two weeks ago, three weeks. Ago, Ago, and they'd actually narrowed the pitch. You could see where the outlay of the old pitch was. So they have narrowed the Wembley pitch to the Spurs, uh, you know, to a slightly more Spurs specification. Um, but it will be about getting the the atmosphere right there. It'll be about using the ball better than they did against Monaco. The game I went to last season in the Champions League, they didn't use the ball very well there. Um, it's it, it's just about you know developing yourself on that football pitch. And yeah, maybe they'll have a bad a bad few games at the start, but they'll get adjusted to it. And arguably, what you could use Wembley as a, if you're Spurs. You'd use it to intimidate the opposition. That this is such a, a grand stadium. Use that sort of grandeur that you're coming to our turf. This is our turf. This is the biggest stadium you're ever going to play in. We're going to beat you here. And that's what they need to build it into a fortress and build it into an intimidating arena. And they could easily do that. If, of course, it doesn't work the other way. But uh, I suppose yeah. everyone's <laughs> going to try and spin it, aren't they? Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, West Ham this season, Dave. Bill, it finally the season that he loses it? This is it, Lawrence. This is the season. The season's been coming. Winter has been coming for Slavon Bilic, and uh, this is going to be it. This is definitely going to be it. I like the the, the acquisition of Javier Hernandez. I think that's a, that's a great signing. I think they've, they've bought a, a striker that scores goals, and what they've been lacking uh, since uh, Golden Sullivan took over was a striker that scored goals. It's, you know The record of their signings has been absolutely atrocious, and what you'll get for Javier Hernandez is that goals. He's, he's so deadly in the penalty area. You know, however old Chicharito will get, however slow he'll get, he's still going to score goals. That's what he's always done. He's, uh, you know, he's improvising his finishes. You know, the, the, the debut goal he scored for United in the um, Community Shield, where he kicked it off his head. Obviously, he was improvising there, Lawrence. You know, that wasn't a mistake. He didn't mean to side foot any. He meant to kick it into his head and then put it into the back of that. But a great signing and a guy that will bring goals to the Premier League. He's got the fifth best ever record in terms of minutes per goals in the Premier League. So expect him to continue. Continue that. Last season, Leverkusen were absolutely rubbish and he still scored over 10 goals in the Bundesliga. So, still impressive. The signings of Analtovic, less impressed about. The signings of Zabaleta, less impressed about. Zabaleta, rubbish for City last season. Legs are gone. What you need to fall back is legs. Would he be first choice for me? No. Is he going to be on a lot of wages? Yes. There's a bit of an issue for you there. Analtovic, again, yeah, record deal. Comes in doing a lot of good stuff for Stoke, but at the same time, there was also times where he did a lot of bad stuff for Stoke. Uh, you know, not tracking back, not yeah. doing his defensive work. And again, it's the balance. It's going to be, you know, Andre Ayew, maybe an Alovic. You're looking at Mikel Antonio as a three behind uh, Chicharito. That's not got that much work in it. I think uh, Mikel Antonio will put the work in, will work back, but then you're thinking you're leaving three players up the pitch. You're so open to the counter attack, it's ridiculous. And that was the problem that Stoke had last season. They, you know, with Shakiri and then Altovic on it and on two flanks, is that they got broke on a bit too 
too much and that will be the problem that West Ham have and you're looking at Noble's out injured Bonner's out injured you know your midfield is quite bare at the moment um, so it, it's going to be it's going to be again it's going to be a difficult season for West Ham and, and Bilic is going to be gone Talk to me a little bit about uh, Southampton Dave because obviously uh, Club well job there is it still the same job this season? I think what Puel did well is defensively, Southampton were really good. You know, the emergence of uh, Romeo as a, as a top-class defensive midfielder in the Premier League, is, you know, it's been coming. Um, you know, we saw his, his quality that he had at Chelsea in spells, but he was really good this season, won more tackles than any other Southampton player. I think what you, you will see with this um, Pellegrini side will be pressing. It'll be back to the days of Pochettino, the day that Southampton fans enjoyed their football. And that's exactly what he'll, what he'll bring out. He got Alaves to the uh, the final of the, the King's Cup in Spain. They lost that to Barcelona, but he got there with a squad that's, you know, pulled together from X, Y and Z that wasn't that good. So, you know, the levels of performance he was getting out of these players was big. I think you've got to look at players like James Ward-Prowse to be having a big season. Again, Gabbiadini's got to continue his goals. Nathan Redmond, it, this is his year. If, he's, if he wants to become a player that plays for, you know, a top-level Premier League side... This has got to be it, where he, he takes this chance under a manager that likes to play with the ball, that likes to attack teams. This is the time that he needs to do it. But it's, it's exciting times again for Southampton uh, back on the South Coast. I think it's, it'll be a good season for them and a more positive season. Again, the fans really got on the back of Claude Poyel because um, he was too defensive. I think they, you know, they went for a barren run of seven, eight games where they didn't score at home. That's just something that needs to be addressed. I think that's, you've got to appease your fans at home. Whatever style of football you play away from me, you know, if you play defensive counter-attacking football away from home, at least play some good football at home. You know, your fans, they, they pay the season tickets. It's this, again, it's not, not it is an entertainment industry, but you've got entertainment industry. You've got to entertain your fans. They've got to be on side. That's the big thing. I don't think it's about you doing it for the for the you know the love of the game. It's so the fans embrace you and the fans get get behind you because that you know going back to the cliches, the twelfth man is very important and they didn't have that at Southampton at St Mary's last season, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the the, the change that's got to come. And with Pellegrini's style of football, it's going to come back. Weirdly, Dave, we're going to finish on Watford uh, on somewhat of a, an anticlimax. Um, to, uh, to talk a li- talk a little bit about that to me because well, obviously there's. Um, you know, there's real sort of issues at Watford with the way that people are employed in England. People seem to have a real problem with it. Do you think it's the same problem on the continent? And do you think this is a football culture which is sustainable? Or do you think this team's going down? So how I see this Watford team is I see it very much like the Udinese team before they broke into the Champions League. It seems to be a similar type of thing where you've got a manager that that's young, that's, that looks like he can go somewhere... You kind of, you know, you've got a goal scorer now in Damari Gray that could um, replicate Di Natale's great goal scoring record in Syria. Again, you're never going to hear that comparison on any other podcast. Andre Gray to Di Natale. But anyway, we'll continue. So it seems like Watford, they will flirt, flirt with a few managers. They will go in and out. Um, both managers that they did sack, arguably both had really poor ends to the season. Um, and it is this chop and change, very heavy thing. But when you're getting someone like Marco Silva and, you know, you've, you've gone big and you've gone ham and you've got, a, you know, one of the most talented young managers on the planet. Um, and again, he showed that a hole. If, if he kept Hull up, that would have been up there with one of the greatest achievements ever a football manager ever had. That squad was terrible when he joined. He basically Close though, brought in, you know, 11 new players and within like two weeks, they were playing style of football. And that I think that's an incredible achievement for a manager is that you have these players that buy into your philosophy that quickly. 
And again, I mentioned Andre Gray. If um, you know someone like Silva can get Omar Nias to score four Premier League goals, Andre Gray is going to score 25. And I think that's what it is. Nias technically is terrible, a terrible footballer, but he scored goals. And it's the system that was built, you know, the likes of Markovic that um, returned to England, uh, you know, off, obviously being loaned from Liverpool, that he got the best out of him as well. And it's this thing that Marco Silva seems to be able to get the best quality out of certain players. One guy that's going to be straight onto that, Will Hughes. Technically a fantastic player, was linked with moving to Liverpool earlier on in his career. A bad injury set him back a bit, but has been bossing it in the Championship. Is still got the quality. Will be a very, very good English central midfielder. And I just feel like with someone like Silva and Hughes, that's a really good relationship. But then again, you think the other signings that they made, they signed a lad called Richard Lisson from Brazil. Arguably beat Chelsea to that signing. And he looks... Like a very, very technically gifted player, 20 years old, represented Brazil at the under-21 levels, looks very much like a Gabriel Jesus slash Gabriel Barbosa type Brazilian striker that is now barrel-chested, now presses, that is now suited for the Premier League. And I expect him, you know, with Andre Gray, with Troy Dini, to maybe, you know, put together a really nice front three great podcasts. But again, Marco Silva, tactical flexibility, could play a 3-5-2 like um, Matarazzi did last season, or could play a 4-5-1 that he has been doing in pre-season. But I think the Andre... A great signing. That has been the change for Watford, and that is why I think they're going to be the biggest overachievers in the Premier League. I think I've got them finishing in eighth, competing for the Europa League. Eighth. You know, I really hope they do. I um, if it wasn't if it wasn't Marco Silva, you'd probably say it'd be much lower, though, right? One hundred percent. I think the um, I think the impact yeah. for for managers um, in football is is huge, and for, for anyone to to not think that, for anyone to think it's just the players, quite frankly, is stupid. You know you. You want to take the biggest example at the moment, Zinedine Zidane. What a manager he is. Um, you know, oh, he's got the greatest players. Oh, he's got this greatest squad. <laughs> Takes a lot more than just having a great squad to winning. Also, his backroom staff, back though. Back. I, I do things, but yeah, his backroom but, staff are quite very responsible as well for what they do. Yeah, there's a lot of great uh, staff yeah, no, at Madrid no. who manage to work around. I, I agree. I agree with that as well. But again, he's the guy. He's the manager at the top. He's he's probably brought this team together, or he's worked with this team that was there before. I just think that it's it's one of these things where the managers, you know, arguably are worth their weight in gold. And we see these transfer fees for players shooting over nearly 200 million euros. You know, you're going to start seeing that from managers because that's what you'll. You know, owners will go back the other way where they'll start to realise clubs that are going the right way, it's all because of one manager. You know, you think of Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp, or, you know, Brendan Rodgers before that. Think of what Conte's done at Chelsea or the development of, you know, other teams. Mourinho or Chelsea or Ferguson at United Mm. or uh, Wenger at, well. Exactly. um, Well, before we go to the next section, Dave, let's talk uh, West Brom. West Brom certainly are... um, Consistent, if nothing else, Dave. Uh, and that's uh, hugely part down to Tony Pulis. Uh, is it another season where, again, they coast? Oh, oh they're going to be in the Tony Pulis positions in the Premier League. That's about maybe 13th to 11th. Just quality. Quality Tony P consistently getting to those areas. West Brom scored more goals than any other team. <coughs> Fuck. <coughs> <coughs> West Brom scored more goals than any other team in the Premier League from set pieces last season. And great news for all West Brom fans. Tony P has just signed a new deal. That's exciting. That is, is it exciting, exciting or think, do you think that will be met with um, not, the, not the, the biggest cheer? I think you've just got to take Tony, Tony Pulis and West Brom for, for what they are. And, uh, you know, West Brom 
fans need to know that Tony Pulis is, you know, is doing a good job keeping them in the Premier League at the moment. Uh, you know, I think that they'll be fine, and I just think that's good for West Brom. It's a good season for West Brom if eventually they could build Tony Pulis to maybe getting to Europa League. Yeah, fine. But at the moment, it's all about you know the longer term development for West Bromwich Albion Football Club. I think Tony Pulis is perfect there. You know, he's signing a Jay Rodriguez from Southampton. He's a good one. Jay Rodriguez, when in form, is a quality striker, and you could think about him maybe playing off um, someone like Rondon. Getting a, a little bit more of a you know another forward into that final third could work out well. Obviously, the losing uh, Darren Fletcher to Stoke City is going to be a big one. Fletcher last season ran the midfield for West Brom, um, so that's going to be something that they're going to have to replace and look to uh, you know evolve the side maybe with uh, Tony P's wonderful, beautiful, tactical, technical long ball football. We will uh, we'll now go into the next part of the podcast, which of course is Chris and Nico talking. I can tell you this right now, Dave. Um, Stoke, Newcastle, wow. Man City, wow. Swansea. It's a good one. It really is a good one. Yeah. Part two, let's get down to it. Welcome back to this bit. Um, now, let's get straight into it. Nico, your guys at the very top of the table in my prediction come the end of the season, Man City. Um, the title is, at this point, expected, but... Is it to be anticipated? Same. I think so. I think um, specifically talking about the conversation with, or I guess between, not really between two people, just kind of two people making comments at one another uh, at different points in time, but Mauricio Pochettino and Antonio Conte talked about the expectation of clubs that spend a certain amount of money, and that certainly comes with Manchester City, but maybe even more so with someone like Pep Guardiola at the helm for his second season in charge. You know, I think a lot of people were underwhelmed with the the first season. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think he intends to make any excuses for himself, but at the same time, there were pieces in those system in, in that system that, that were not adequate and city have more done, you know, done more than, than replace them. And, you know, we've brought in players like Bernardo Silva and, and, and Danilo and Kyle Walker and Aderson uh, that I think are all massive upgrades, uh, and and not only that, but just you know adding to the to the squad depth. So I, I think it is expected, and I I think we could walk into a situation where Manchester City are are very much uh, ahead of a lot of other teams very early on. It's also how you see them play, though, isn't it? Because I mean, the demolition of Spurs in preseason. Um, the idea that some of these players are really enjoying their football. I mean, we were talking earlier about Kyle Walker and how he was saying he watched Man City play and appreciated Danny Rose. that. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, Danny Rose. Um, although, to be fair, the, the two might exist on the same team now. Uh, you know, uh, it's sort of, it's watched them play and sort of said, I really appreciate that. That made me want to play for them. You sort of get a similar feeling about Kyle Walker now at this team. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's the important thing that I want to highlight is that a, a lot of people try to imagine the different ways that, that Guardiola and City will use all these new signings and how do you fit all the all of them on the pitch at the same time. And I think you almost don't. This is what the, the two Manchester clubs are doing, which is they're preparing, you know, every possible solution for every problem that they will encounter. It's so many different uh, you know ways of playing that there could be you know Walker and Mendy on the wings with with a bunch of guys inside you know maybe looking for a little more uh, central penetration or then Leroy Sané and Raheem Sterling out on the wings doing things uh, and creating chances you know out wide and and doing good things out there so 
I think there, there's a multitude of ways that Guardiola is, is going to attack the season, going to attack Mourinho and different opponents that he'll face. And I, I just I'm really excited for it because I think he has all of the pieces to do everything that he ever wanted to do. I think I often sort of talk about, you know, there was Messi at, at, at Barcelona. There was Manuel Neuer at, at Bayern Munich that those two players sort of allowed them to do very special things with, with the way that he sort of thinks about the game and likes to play them. And I think while I wouldn't, while I would never compare someone like Bernardo Silva or Aderson to those two players that I mentioned, there are, you know, elements of what they're able to do and what they're able to offer that I think give Guardiola the best of both worlds in, in those systems. You know, Aderson's a very aggressive keeper. He's willing to come off his line better than Claudio Bravo. And and like I spoke about in the piece I wrote not too long ago, you know, Bernardo Silva can do certain things cutting inside and, and occupying that role that perhaps Messi did in the earlier stages of his Barcelona career. So I think, like I said, it's multiple solutions to every problem that he thinks he'll face. And I think even your, you know, if you support another team, Manchester City will be the best, if not one of, you know, the, the best sides to, to watch this season. But then what is their biggest challenge this season, Kristen? Because there's some massive challenges that they're going to come up against. It's part of it that they, they are going to come up against a lot of teams who are going to look to frustrate this team. And for that reason, it's going to be frustrating sometimes. Um, as You can play all as much beautiful football as you want, but if you're against a side that just sits and sits and sits, you know there are going to be those similar moments that Pep's experienced at other clubs and been frustrated. Um, yeah, partly. I mean, the, th- the thing is, with him signing fullbacks and Fernandinho said on Brazilian television that uh, he expects another left-back to come in, whether that's Rose or, or someone further down the, the food chain, I'm not sure. It will give them a different kind of option because not only does it, it widen the field and in the case of Mendy and Walker, give them players that are... I would say lethal on the transition, as we saw. I think the best example of this is if you look at the goal Deli Ali scored against Stoke at the Britannia last season. Walker starts on his own goal line and ends up providing the assist. Um, that for me is exactly why he, Guardiola wants this type of fullback. At the same time, against teams that are bunkered in, you could argue that speed, that pace has the opportunity to to be used in overlaps and things like that. So I, th- I think you look at a lot of his signings this summer, and, and to me, they they feed into the idea that he's expecting teams to bunker in against him. It's guys like Bernardo Silva who are exceptionally good in tight spaces, who are able to create something when it seems as if there's not really an opportunity there. That's not to say that I think he he won't struggle in some of those instances, but I think he's better prepared. I think it's very easy to get into the, the tribalism of things and say that he underestimated the Premier League. I don't think that's the case. I think what he underestimated was the quality of his squad because it was on a, a fairly sizable downturn for what he actually wanted to achieve as a tactician and then also for what City wanted to achieve as a football club. And I think now he's got more players with... A fresh mental slate, if you will. They don't have any of the the war wounds and the the bad inertia that has been, I think, collected amongst some of those City players. I mean, the likes of Nasri is a good example. He's not going to play this season, I don't think. And part of that is because he doesn't have the right attitude to play at that level anymore. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think he's made some good signings 
he spent a boatload of money, and I think certainly to a degree it's boom or bust for him this season. Oh, yeah. Um, but we'll see. It, it depends. As we saw last season, a bright start means nothing if you don't carry it through until May. Uh, excellent uh, phrasing. Uh, let's let's go on to Newcastle. Let's stay stay with you here, Chris. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear lots more from Nico, especially in analysis throughout the season. But um, anyway, uh, in Newcastle, Chris. The, 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 there's a lot of sort of posturing going on around the club. Um, it's sort of a. It seems like quite a, not a desperate situation, but a politics that Benitez is used to playing. And maybe hmm. Newcastle United and Mike Ashley aren't. Yeah, I watch football to get away from politics, but it uh, it seems to follow me wherever I go at the minute. Um, it's you, you, you question and you, you, your evaluation, I think, was spot on. Um, you have an owner that has never worked with a manager in the position of power that Benitez is, um, because even Chris Hutton, who'd got them promoted, could be kind of not shut down but could be explained away by the fact that this was his first job in football at the time he didn't have much of a pedigree etc etc Benitez has been and, and won things at big clubs has established big clubs um, and so there is now a, a sort of undercurrent that if if things go wrong with him then I think a lot of fans will just chuck it in altogether um, because for them they don't see a better day coming. Um, with with Hewton, with Pardew, you could sit there and say, well, you know what? If they quit, we could probably find someone better realistically. I don't think you could with Benitez. Um, now, granted, I, I'm slightly biased because I really like Benitez a lot. Um, I see... Who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I look at him and I understand a lot of the decisions he makes and I understand that he just cares a lot. He cares a lot about his own image. Don't get me wrong, it's not all um, philanthropic in that sense. But at the same time, I think he just wants to to take the club into, I was going to say a new stratosphere, but he wants to take them back to where they were at their peak. Um, and I think he sees the potential to do that and the potential that would have on his reputation in terms of wouldn't be... That's I think I said that to Nico a couple, couple weeks ago that every club that he'd been at before had been a big institution before he arrived and had achieved things before he arrived. Whereas Newcastle, whether you think it's a, 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 you know, a mad colony up north full of idiots or not, it hasn't achieved anything of note. And yet there is still a sizable achievement in getting them to win something. So... I wish they had more money to spend, speaking purely as a fan right now, um, because mm. I, I, if I'm honest, I always used to be quite principled and, and things like, you know, I, I don't know if I would want my club to have that makeover that Chelsea and Man City would, would have had. And I don't know if I would want to go that far because I think it's easy to, to gain a distance from your club with that takeover. But I would love to be able to just see us not have to scrimp and save and make loan signings all the time and and have to um and ah about every penny. Um, if that is the yeah, way it is, or if it is just that someone's being tight. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's the thing. Is it, you, you've got to remember that Benitez can can love the club. He can see something in it, and you know whether that's legitimate or not is is another t- discussion. 
but Mike Ashley, I don't think does. I, I don't think he has any time for the supporters. Really, I don't think uh, there's there's any desire from him to grow it any further than he has to, or at least invest any of himself in it. Um, because yeah, it's it's been a loss for him most of the time. Nico, talk to me a little bit about West Ham because they're a fascinating side. Statman Dave has obviously said a fair bit about them already um, and that he doesn't necessarily believe in Bilic. A lot of people saying that Bilic is at his wit's end at this point. Yeah, um, no, I would be I would be singing from the same uh, hymn sheet as Dave. I think Bilic has, hasn't necessarily you're out of uh, tune. done a lot of things. Excuse me? You're out of tune. I'm out of tune. Uh, yeah, perhaps. Um, I, I think perhaps I'm out of tune with some of the West Ham fans that are that are confident in, in some of the signings that they've made. I'm not so confident. Besides, you know, perhaps Chicharito. I think even Chris said this a few weeks ago um, when the news was more recent. In you know, signings like Joe Hart and Pablo Zabaleta are the kind that you know you imagine because of the because of where they played previously and because of sort of their namesake and the, and the stature and everything that comes with that people would imagine better performance from those players and perhaps an elevation to where you know people feel like West Ham didn't take those steps the year previous um certainly going down but i i think I think with that, you know, with the uncertainty of right back and and replacing them or or having someone in the mix there like Pablo Zabaleta who you know, for all the the love I have for him being a, a former Manchester City player and everything that he did for the club. I just I, I really see clearly how West Ham will struggle because of the tactical ineptitude, the the lack of, you know, a, a secure idea, not not just to how the club play, but just to how that team plays under Billich. I, I think they they depend far too much on certain ent- entities that simply aren't consistent enough. And I I could while I maybe a, a bit of an over exaggeration is saying that they will fight relegation. I think with the quality of manager that is currently within the Premier League, guys like Paul Clement, um, people like David Wagner in, in the newly promoted clubs, you know, Bernard, uh, not Bernardo Silva, but Marco Silva going to Watford. You imagine that that clubs that aren't moving forward and, and managers that don't have the same degree of invention, um, especially within the modern game, will struggle. And, and I think Billage falls into that category. Certainly is a interesting one. Uh, um, they're an exciting team or will be an exciting team to watch in the new season. Let's see, though, uh, what they do get up to. Um, Stoke City, of course, Chris. Uh, when I say they're an unknown quantity, it's because they seem to be every summer having this incredible approach to signing players, letting some of them go, sort of some of them don't even make it in the first team. So we don't really know who's going to be putting out there. But Mark Hughes, either way, is somewhat of a roller coaster man and a roller coaster ride for this uh, Stoke City set of fans who before were used to Big Tony P. I could definitely see him going this season. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's definitely that. Although most people start Mark Hughes season every season saying that, don't they? Yeah, he's, is it th- three years in a row to finish ninth? Um, yeah, and yeah, it was I think three or four, and then most recently eleventh. Someone dialed an um, emergency. Well, that's the thing, you know. Robbie Savage is a very public defender of of Mark Hughes. Um, knows him quite well. I think played under him as well, so that's probably part of the reason that um, he sees qualities that others don't. Sure, but I and think... also probably one of the reasons that people don't see those same qualities because the endorsement of Robbie Savage anyway. 
Yeah, I, I just I just think that yes, it it it's very much depends how you paint the picture. It's either three top ten finishes in the last four years, or mm. it's ninth place, ninth place, ninth place, and then a regression to eleventh. Um, I I haven't seen any progress from Stoke under him. That's the thing, and I think that's what fans are always looking for. They're always looking for some kind of progress, and. You look at the fact they bought Mbula for, I think it was a club record fee, hasn't kicked on. Now, some of that is obviously his fault. You could argue some of it's his manager's fault as well. And I think when you most. look at... Yeah, I think when you look at the signings this summer, um, Maxim, Chupamorting, yeah, okay. Like, not, like it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing to really kind of rouse you. You know, it's but nothing to get you excited. Those sort of guys. I mean, if I mean, if he comes in, he's, he's someone they already knew because they've had him on loan. It's not, it's not a huge difference maker to me. Um, Kurt Zuma might be, but again, he's on loan. He's going to go back. There's no purchase option, so it's it's short termism. And nestled within that, they've lost Arnautovic, who I don't think he was worth 25 million, but he was one of their better players last season. Um, his numbers dropped a little bit, but I don't think he was taking penalties, which which influences that. But yeah, you're now looking to try and replace him with, as I say, about 19, 20 days left of the window. And you have to try and make a sizable acquisition that I assume they hadn't planned for. When you're making a buy that's not that's that big for a club like Stoke or a club AC that's outside the top six, and it's not meticulously planned and thought through, it always gives me the willies because I think it's just a recipe for disaster. Well, a team who were uh, meticulously planned through and sometimes do still feel that way, uh, Swansea City and Paul Clement. Um, Clement will do good things this season, Nico. Um, but they're basically going to be making it tough if Sigurdsson goes, and that's why they're fighting tooth and nail to keep him. However, I'm not 100% sure that... Uh, if they'd have let him go earlier in the window, do you think they'd have been able to make some better signings and therefore stay up? It, all their eggs on it in a Gilfie Sigurdsson-shaped basket, basically. Well, I, w- I wouldn't agree with, with that um, particular take on it because I think the reason that they're fighting tooth and nail for Gil- Gilfie Sigurdsson to stay is actually maybe more so of a, of a play acting to get even more money out of someone Brilliant. like him. Because I think if you... If you really look at someone like Sigurdsson, I'm not saying he's a bad player. I think the, the the numbers that people are impressed with, you know, the base numbers that people are impressed with, with um, someone like Gilfie Sigurdsson are largely he's a, he's a set piece kind of guy, and he doesn't necessarily create a ton of chances from open plays, and he takes a lot of risks um, in, in sort of the things that he does. So I really don't value him as as maybe uh, some other people do, and I think under Paul Clement. And under the, you know, with the possession system that he's looking to implement, maybe that directly contrasts to someone that I spoke about earlier, which was uh, DeBoer. I think it's in, you know, it's inventive. I think it's original. I think it has uh, certain aspects of it that that provide danger regardless of the opponent. So I'm really excited to see what Paul Clement will do in an entire season with Swansea and, and specifically uh, how he can get the best out of the combination of, of Fernando Llorente and Tammy Abraham, because I think they will be a really, really, uh, uh, you know, powerful strike force. Tammy Abraham certainly seems like an inspired young signing. If he can get 
uh, in, into that, that regular uh, team that they'll be fielding. And under Paul Clement, you'd imagine there's certainly a space for him. Um, uh, either of you into fantasy football before we, we, we get off? Yeah, I love it. Nice. And you, Chris? No, I think it's a scourge of the game. Brilliant. Um, and that's why we love our sponsors this week. Um, do you actually think it's a scourge, Chris? <laughs> Good. Uh, just checking. Uh, imagine like, imagine having, having that. that, that no, no, no. It's, it, it, is, it, is still funny. it is still funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, there, there are plenty of fancy <laughs> games. Sense. But, could sense you were doing a link and I thought, oh, I'll really fuck this. But we have already, we have already uh, spoken time and time again about fantasy football. And I think we're doing another league this season, if someone can be bothered. Uh, definitely to... got to edit this. You can't put this out on, on a bash like Why this. Why not? Why not? We, we both know you were joking. I, I mean, you, you literally were kidding there. Um, so it isn't the scourge of the game. That's clearly clickbaiting. Um Chris, I imagine you're actually quite good at fantasy football. In fact, the previous seasons when we've either done the fantasy game, you've definitely been above a majority of the team here. Yeah, it's you know what it is? It's a lot of fun because it's essentially building a puzzle. And yeah, yeah, you've, yeah. You, so you've got your, you know, you've got your kitty of money, however much that is. And then I, I still remember like a very vivid childhood memory. My dad at work had a fantasy football league. And we we pulled up the the league table in the newspaper. Pulled up, you can't really pull up in a newspaper. You know what I mean? Looked at the league table. We swiped the right. There it was in the newspaper. And you're saying, well, okay, Middlesbrough. I remember arguing as me, my brother, and my dad put the team together. Well, Middlesbrough had a really good defence, so we should put Gareth Southgate in there. And all these kind of little. It was very very basic back then, and you can go into real depth with it now which I think is is a lot of the fun and probably a lot of the frustration at the same time in terms of you can pick up a player worth nothing at the start of the season that turns out to to have a breakout campaign. Um, and at the same time, you can invest in someone that seems, you know, a dead cert for points and, and lets you down miserably. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good judge of your uh, ability spotting or talent spotting, if nothing else. Mm, certainly so. Well, you can join our fantasy league. I'm sure there'll be a link in our Twitter. If you don't already have part of that, go to at the front three, the numeral three. If you want to go find Nico, Nico, how can people find you on Twitter? They can find me at Nico underscore O Morales on Twitter. Nicely done. You can, of course, find Kristen at K Henage, H E N E A G E. Don't forget the K uh, for his name. Um, and that is actually also Kristen's catchphrase. Um, hey. it's, it's a ketamine joke. Um, anyway. Anyway, Dev, it's been good to have you on the podcast today. Uh, people can go find your podcast. Are you going back daily this year or are you going weekly on the Stat Monday? I'm not, football podcast? not sure. It's, it's TBC at the moment. TBC. Uh, Dave and I, of course, are going to be watching the football uh, together tonight. Let us know your views. Well, I say tonight. Yeah, it, you know what? We're recording on a Friday. Screw it. Um, so let us know your views before that game. Let us know your views before the weekend. We'll also be on uh, the kickoff with Coral on um, Saturday, 2.30. Join Dave and I there with some very special things. 